Today we come to the second sermon directed to elders, that is to pastors. But as we pointed out last Sunday, Peter deliberately wanted all of these words to be heard by every member of the congregation. Last week we took up verses 1 and the first part of verse 2 in 1 Peter chapter 5, which gives us the essence of the pastor's task. The elders who are among you I exhort, who am also a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. And here's the essence of the task in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. Shepherd, that is, tend the flock of God and oversee the flock of God, that is, administer, supervise the work of that particular flock. And as we saw last Lord's Day, the priority in all of this is on the teaching of God's Word. That's not the entirety of the pastor's responsibility, but that is the priority of the pastor's main responsibility as an under-shepherd of Christ, ministering to that portion of Christ's flock that has been assigned to him. Today, as we move on in this passage, we will learn of the necessary attitudes or motives which pastors must have if they are going to properly serve the Lord and serve his people. And everything that Peter says about attitudes, I think, could be boiled down into one word, And that word is service. The pastor must maintain a servant's heart. Remember Christ as he girded the towel about him and took the servant's place and washed the disciples' feet. And that was an object lesson to his apostles who would take prominent positions as ministers in the early church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but to remind them always that their place is first and foremost as a servant of Christ and a servant of his people. Because, as we no doubt know, leadership has a way of encouraging pride and an exaggerated sense of importance. And therefore, the hearts of pastors are going to have to be carefully maintained and carefully guarded and frequently examined and regularly corrected, or they will lose this servant's heart this focus upon serving others and serving Christ. Most pastors, no doubt, begin their ministry in the early days with a servant's heart, but it is very, very possible, very likely, that over the course of time they are going to lose some of that perspective unless they are brought back to it regularly by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God. It's so easy to gradually slide into an attitude of professionalism rather than in the, the attitude of a servant serving others at all times. And so Peter's exhortation calls pastors back to the right spirit, the spirit of service. When he tells them to serve as overseers, tending the flock of God which is among you serving as overseers, not by compulsion but willingly, not for dishonest gain but eagerly, Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Time permitting, I'm going to divide this portion of our text today 
into two parts, and that is, number one, serving the sheep in verses 2b and 3, and number two, serving the shepherd, verse 4. And this is the attitude that the pastor must continually keep in mind, that he is serving the sheep, the flock of God that has been entrusted into his care, and ultimately and always that he is serving the shepherd who one day will appear and before whom he shall give an account. First of all, serving the sheep. And as you noticed, if you were watching carefully, there are three phrases that describe the pastor's attitude and motives in regard to the sheep. Each of these phrases has both a negative and a positive statement. Something not to do, something to do. And number one, uh, not, looking back here to find my text, not by compulsion, but willingly. Number two, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Number three, nor or not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. These three phrases that describe the pastor's attitude of service toward the sheep. First of all, pastors are to serve willingly, not by compulsion, but willingly, not by compulsion. Not as being forced to do this. You might wonder why any pastor would feel forced to do this. And it's not likely that a man is pressed into the office of pastor initially, unwillingly. Though there may have been some rare occasions of that down through history. For example, history tells us that Augustine was pressed into the office of bishop Basically, by force of others. He really did not desire nor seek that office at all. But that's rather unusual and certainly is almost totally foreign to anything in our experience in America today. So men don't normally enter into the office of pastor by a sense of compulsion, being forced into it unwillingly. But it is possible after a period of time to begin to want out and to not know how to get out. And to feel that you are being forced to do something that you no longer have a heart for. And therefore are continuing to serve as by compulsion and not willingly as is necessary in order to carry this out in a God-honoring way. This very language of Peter implies that pastoring is a difficult assignment. Men will find it so if they do not already recognize it as such before they enter into this office. It is a very difficult assignment, more difficult, more demanding than most people will ever realize unless they experience it for themselves. And there are many casualties along the way. Polls. Everything in the church today is run by polls. Polls tell us that the average pastor serves 15 years and then gets out of the ministry. 15 years. Some, of course, less, others more, but the average is 15 years. That is, most men who enter the ministry don't finish the ministry before they're done with their working working years. It's very demanding. It's one of the most difficult tasks that a man can apply himself to. And so Peter says, don't serve by compulsion. 
That word compulsion is the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 9.7. They're translated necessity. When he's talking about giving and how we must give willingly, not out of necessity or compulsion, he says, so let every one of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. Same word, not grudgingly or of compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. How are we to give to God? Not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, not like we're being put upon, being forced to give, not complaining about our giving, but giving with a willing heart, a willing spirit. Well, it's exactly the same idea here in how the under-shepherd is to serve as a pastor. He is to do so not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, not to feel that he's being put upon. He should not be complaining about the arduous nature of his task, though in fact it is a task of great demands, because begrudging service never pleases God any more than begrudging giving ever pleases God. Not out of compulsion. Why might an elder feel trapped in his duty of service? Well, he will find out after a while, and sooner probably rather than later, that as a pastor he is often the target of opposition and even persecution in many parts of the world today. If a man takes the office of pastor, he is immediately targeted for severe persecution even martyrdom and death in many parts of the world. And you can see why a man might be reluctant to step into that office, bad enough to be named a Christian and try to keep your head down in a low profile and keep from being a target of persecution, but to step into the place of leadership of the church and to put a bullseye, as it were, on your back so that Muslims or others might target you for special attention and elimination if possible, you can see why a man might be a little reluctant to step into that place. He better be sure that God has called him. He better be willing to lay down his life. He better be willing to serve eagerly, not under compulsion. The pastoral office, as exercised in any place, usually carries with it a high level of stress. Everything you read about how to be healthy says reduce your stress. But, of course, that's easier said than done. That means change everything in your life. Uh, Our lives are filled with stress, all of us, different factors that bring stress. And the pastor's role is endued with a high level of stress for a lot of reasons. Pastors find that they are frequently dealing with misunderstandings. I heard one pastor describe it as he spends most of his time just running around putting out fires, putting out fires, putting out fires. If he can just keep keep the fires out, then everything will go well. Well, I must say I, I don't see my job as primarily one of running around putting out fires, but there are times, there are days, there are weeks, there are periods when it really does seem that way. And when there are so many misunderstandings to deal with. A dedicated pastor generally puts in very long hours in his job. More than most people put in in their public work. And there are always multitudes of responsibilities and expectations, both from the flock as well as sometimes from his own heart. And 
There are sometimes inadequate finances that put a great deal of stress upon a pastor. And sometimes in that situation, a pastor will feel trapped. He would like to find an honorable way out, and he's not quite sure how to do it. And so he continues to serve, but he's now serving grudgingly, under compulsion, rather than willingly. A word that means voluntarily. That is, like a volunteer. Like a volunteer. People don't generally serve in assignments as volunteers unless there is a a special commitment, a special love for that particular task and that particular cause, a special commitment to to the area of service that they have chosen to volunteer in. And a pastor, though he's not a volunteer, and we'll deal with that in a moment, he has no doubt volunteered for the assignment and waited upon God to show him whether indeed he has been called. But though he is not a volunteer, he needs to serve with the same spirit, that same spirit of love and commitment and devotion, as if he were serving entirely voluntarily. That's the right attitude, the servant's heart that is necessary happy for the opportunity to serve Christ and His church, willing to do what the pastoring assignment requires, whatever that may be, but particularly and maybe exclusively what the Bible tells him that that assignment may be. And that is part of the pressure because sometimes what other people think the pastor's assignment is is different from what the Bible says it is, and that creates pressure, tension, unmet expectations, misunderstandings. So he has to be willing to do what the Bible says the pastor's assignment requires. That means he's going to have to be willing to give himself to diligent study and careful preparation of sermons. He cannot be a man who borrows his sermons from others. Secondhand sermons, slipshod preparation, as sometimes characterizes pulpit ministry in some places. It's not that he does not read other men and glean from other men. That's very much a part of what he does in studying. But he doesn't just grab what somebody else did and pass it off as his own. In that way, God's Word doesn't really become a part of his own soul, his own fabric. Secondhand salvation gets no one to heaven. Secondhand religion doesn't serve the Lord honorably. And secondhand sermons don't please the Lord either, nor feed God's sheep. He has to be thorough in the work of organization and administration. Remember what Paul said in Romans 12.8 about spiritual gifts, and he said, He who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence. He who leads with diligence. Pastors have been assigned by God a leading role, and therefore they must lead with diligence. They have to give themselves to that, willingly, eagerly, happy to do what the Bible tells them is their responsibility. They need to be willing to stand for truth and take the heat that comes with that, heat that often comes from the world, the scorn, the persecution, the incredulity that sometimes the world casts towards those who actually believe the Bible. You don't believe that, do you? Yes, we do. Of course, all Christians feel this to some extent, but pastors to a higher degree. And sometimes the heat that comes from within the congregation as he's dealing with truth from God's Word that is not going over well with some people. 
What does a pastor do in that situation? Some will compromise. Some will tone it down. Some will soften it. Some will cut and run. Some will go into survival mode. I'll do whatever is necessary in order to stay here. Because if I, if I lose my job, then what good can I do in that? And so they will curb the truth rather than declare the truth and leave it with the Lord and let the chips fall where they may. But that's what's necessary to be faithful to God. To confront sin and error and to deal with it properly. That is in a biblical way. All of these things are required of the pastor. And he must do that not begrudgingly, but willingly. Willing to do whatever the Bible says his assignment is. And then many of the translations add a third phrase that is not in my translation. That says, as God would have you. Not by compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. A phrase that is omitted in some translations, but it is well attested to. It perhaps got omitted somewhere along the way because it tends to spoil the symmetry of the three phrases. All three of them have a negative, a positive, a negative, a positive, a negative, a positive. But this first one has a negative, a positive, an extra phrase, and then... The second one, negative, positive, negative, positive. And it's very likely that simply the form caused this phrase to drop out in some manuscripts. But as God would have you, which evidently means you do these things according to the will of God. Biblically defined role of pastor. Biblically defined work assignment, as I've already described. Or it can mean as God shepherds his flock. As God would have you, that is, as God shepherds his larger flock, or maybe more to the point, in the wholehearted devotion of Christ, the chief shepherd, who always delighted to do his Father's will. No matter how difficult it was. He always delighted to do his Father's will. Did the chief shepherd. Under shepherds must also always delight to do God's will. That's the way. Not under compulsion, but willingly. But secondly, he must do so eagerly. That's kind of a step up, even from willingly. Eagerly, willingly, and eagerly as well. Not for dishonest gain is the negative part, but eagerly. Not for dishonest gain. Not, as the old King James says so colorfully, for filthy lucre. You say, what is lucre? I don't know, but it sounds bad. (laughs) Especially when you put filthy in front of it. It sounds really bad. Not for filthy lucre. Not for dishonest gain. And now Peter touches upon money and the money motive. And whenever you bring up money, there are always many strong opinions and disagreements and divisions. And money far too often becomes a source of contention even in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And one reason for that is because money, as we should all have learned by now, is always a potential pitfall for all of God's people. There are dangers associated with money. There's dangers associated with covetousness. There's dangers associated with greed and envy and with an inordinate love of money. Tremendous dangers 
And these are dangerous for all of the people of God, and pastors are not immune from them. They're people too. Pastors are under-shepherds on the one hand, but they're sheep on the other hand. Similar in that respect to the role of the Old Testament priest, who on the one hand was a special representative in the presence of God where others could not go, but he was one of the people. And so our pastors, elders, they are on the one hand under shepherds, the sheep are not that, but on the other hand they're one of the sheep. And so they have all of the potential foibles and weaknesses and failures of any Christian. So, you've got to be careful. Not serving for dishonest gain. Now, financial compensation is not the issue that Peter is addressing here, as the Bible makes so abundantly clear elsewhere. Christ taught that the laborer is worthy of his reward. When he sent out the twelve apostles, for example, in Matthew chapter 10, he said, provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts. In other words, don't go at your own expense. Nor bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staffs, for a worker is worthy of his food. And he instructed them to go and to be cared for by others and to receive gratefully and graciously whatever was provided. And that sets the foundation for the consistent teaching throughout the New Testament that pastors are supposed to be financially supported. Paul dealt with this extensively in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. The whole first 14 verses really address this subject. And a couple of key texts are verse 11. He said, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? And he said in verse 14, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. And again, in Galatians chapter 6, he said, let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. And I'm sure by now we're very familiar with that text In 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18, it says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So the Bible is consistent in telling us that elders ought to be financially supported. So financial support is not the problem that Peter is driving at here when he says, don't serve for financial gain. Because he's talking about a particular kind of financial gain. That word sordid or dishonest, as it's it's found in my translation, is the key here. Not for Sordid gain, dishonest gain, that is disgraceful gain or dishonorable gain. That's the characteristic of false teachers. You find that consistently in the New Testament, that false teachers, when they're described, have several characteristics. One, of course, is that they teach what is not true. They distort the word of God. But almost always it's attached to the money motive. They do it for financial gain. That's their real motive for doing what they're doing. They do it for money. They find that they're profitable ways to mishandle the word of God. 
to fool people, to mislead people, to deceive people by erroneous teaching, and there are ways to profit financially by doing that. But in contrast, the faithful under-shepherd is to commit himself to carefully handling the Word of God, teaching exactly and only what it says, and he must always do so without the money motive in mind. What Peter is denouncing here is money that is acquired in a base or sordid way. A way that would produce shame if it were uncovered, if it were known. The misappropriation of funds. The business tactics of making merchandise of God's people. That's one reason why it's so important that churches and indeed all Christian ministries have very thorough financial accountability. It ought to be thorough. It ought to be open. God's people should require that as a help to those who are in leadership positions. No Christian should accept the statement, well, I'm an elder, so just trust me. An elder should not do that either. He's setting himself up for failure in this very area. Let the finances be openly reported so that they can be carefully scrutinized by everyone. And that's a good guard against the danger that Peter is talking about, that the pastor not serve for dishonest gain. Make it impossible for the pastor to be able to misappropriate funds by putting everything out where it can be seen. Because money should never motivate the under-shepherd, There is a difference between the heart of a hireling and the heart of a shepherd. And the heart of the hireling is generally attached to false teachers. The heart of the shepherd is one to serve regardless. To serve not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. That means with zeal for Christ and his kingdom. Serve not for the prospect of making money, but serve with zeal for the sheer joy of having the opportunity to serve in this way. What a wonderful joy. What a wonderful privilege. What what a wonderful opportunity that has been given to me. How blessed I am to be able to serve the Lord in this way. That's the attitude that needs to accompany the pastor's service. And so I have some advice for pastors and aspiring pastors. There are always both pastors and aspiring pastors in every congregation, let me give you some advice in regard to money based upon what Peter has taught here. And, of course, I'm speaking to myself in this as well. Number one, plunge wholeheartedly into your work and trust God to supply. Plunge wholeheartedly into your work and trust God to supply your needs. Number two, accept what God supplies without complaint or resentment. You really shouldn't make what you think is going to be supplies the criteria whether you are willing to accept this assignment or that assignment. You are edging into the very danger that Peter warns against here. If what God supplies seems insufficient, your first line of of response to that is to be willing to reduce your expenses. God's supply 
should determine our lifestyle, not our desires and expectations. That's true for all of us. Why is America in the financial mess and recession it's in now? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but one of them is overspending by so many of the citizens of America. Spending beyond our means. Borrowing, borrowing, borrowing. Not allowing what God has supplied to dictate our lifestyle, but rather letting what we think ought to be our lifestyle, what we want to be our lifestyle, dictating what we're going to have one way or another, and overextending ourselves to have it. And that is a dangerous attitude for anyone, and that certainly is a dangerous attitude for a pastor. Number four, if tent-making is necessary, and sometimes it is, Paul did that on occasion to supply for his needs. Evidently, God hadn't supplied the very basic bare necessities in some cases without, without going to work with his hands and making tents. And many a pastor is bivocational. Many a pastor has to work on the side as he pastors a small church. And if tent making is necessary, then number one, view it as an honorable necessity. There's nothing wrong with that, nothing shameful about that. Don't be too proud to do that. That indicates an ungodly pride. But number two, view it as a temporary necessity. It shouldn't be what you expect to do long range. What you're expecting is that God will bless your labors and in time things will improve so that you will be able to devote yourself entirely, 100% to the ministry, which is the desire of every under-shepherd's heart and is the ideal that is set before us in Scripture. Continuing my advice, realize that most pastors earn less in the pastorate than their abilities would be capable of in the secular world. That's not always true, but it's generally true. You just need to realize that going in. And therefore, consider financial sacrifice a privilege in the service of Christ. But number five, recognize that some pastors are supported very generously. It has been that way down through the years. I enjoy reading history, and sometimes I run into those situations where the same uh, tension has been true in years gone by. Some people complained about what they thought was the too large a salary of G. Campbell Morgan, for example. Some people complained about what they thought was the too large a salary of Charles Spurgeon, for example, whose salary was enormous by the standards of that day. Of course, he pastored a church of 5,000 people and had tremendous responsibilities upon him. But recognize that some elders are supported generously. In the 36 years I have pastored, I can testify that I have run the gamut from nearly inadequate to very comfortable and everything in between. And I've been delighted with the opportunity to serve the Lord in every one of those conditions along the way. And if generous support becomes your lot at some time, what you need to be sure is that you have a clear conscience that it came from God. You didn't gain it dishonorably. If you find yourself in generous circumstances, then you need to have a clear conscience. That's not because I connived. That's not because I manipulated. That's not because I did something dishonest. I misappropriated. That's not because of some mechanism that I put in place. That's because in being faithful to the job that God had called me to, this is what God 
chose to supply. With a clear conscience, I can say before God, I didn't seek that, I didn't go after that, but God has supplied it. If you don't have that kind of a conscience, you're going to have trouble in your relationship with the Lord. You're going to really have trouble serving the Lord properly if you know in the back of your mind that what you have you got by sordid gain, by shameful, dishonest, and questionable means. And if that is not your situation, comfortable circumstances, then don't resent or envy those who are generously supported because that is another sin that you'll have to deal with in your heart. But never enter ministry expecting to receive a large salary because you'll probably be disappointed. And therefore, if you or your wife are unwilling to sacrifice, pursue another vocation. Evidently, you're not cut out to pastor. The third attitude is humbly. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but examples to the flock. Not as being lords over those entrusted to you. The word lord over, that's really one word in the Greek, two words in our English, but lord over is a compound word. It has, first of all, the common word lord, kurios in the verb form, and then with the Greek preposition kata, which means down, to rule down. It speaks of intensity, of heavy-handedness, of domineering spirit. The very way Peter puts this implies a legitimate exercise of authority, but the temptation is to abuse it, to misuse it. Of course, Peter, pastors have legitimate God-given authority. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.12, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you, that's one thing that pastors do, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. Three things that they do here. They labor among you as examples. They are over you as leaders, administrators, overseers, and they admonish you. They instruct you in the things of God. And God's sheep, God's people are commanded to recognize that. And of course, there are other texts, such as the well-known one in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 17, that also tell us the importance of obeying those who have spiritual authority who rule over us. The, the scripture is clear about that. And so to say not as being lords over those entrusted to you does not demand no authority on the part of the pastor any more than saying not to serve for, for dishonest gain means that there should be no financial compensation. Uh, both imply that there is a level. There's a level of honorable Compensation, so don't misuse it. Don't abuse the office. Beyond that, there is a level of necessary and honorable authority, but don't abuse it. Don't go beyond that. Don't become heavy-handed and domineering. Don't lord down upon God's people. This heavy-handed way of leadership is illustrated, as we know, by Diotrephes in the third epistle of John. 
John says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. <laughs> Doesn't receive an apostle. Oh, wow, he's really taken authority unto himself beyond what is honorable. Therefore, says John, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. There's a an area of abusive authority, abusive church discipline, abusive excommunication that is not according to the word of God. But he'll put people out of the church if they receive apostles like John or other true teachers of God's word. He's going to rule. He's going to control. He's going to control Every aspect of everybody's life in that congregation, and if they don't knuckle under that, he's going to put them out. Well, that's abusive authority. The pastor's not a dictator. He doesn't lead harshly. He doesn't rule excessively. He doesn't rule by threats. But he rules in a Christ-like spirit. And he rules those who are assigned to him, not as being lords over those entrusted to you. And that, that idea, entrusted to you, I think I pointed out last week, has the idea of being assigned by lot. Those who have been, have been assigned to you, by who? By God, of course. Those assigned to you, under shepherds, recognize that they don't choose their sheep. Christ does. And he places them in the flock that he assigns to the various under-shepherds. And so pastors must recognize their sheep as assigned to them by God, and members should recognize their elders as assigned to them by God too. Works both ways. We're in this flock together because God brought us together. So let's recognize that and learn to relate to one another in a God-honoring way, in a biblical way, recognizing that God has done this. God has brought us together in this way. And you are to serve the flock humbly, not as, as being examples to the flock, not as overlords to the flock, but examples to the flock, models for Christians to follow, lives worthy of imitation, leading by example as well as by, by uh, precept and teaching from the pulpit, and yes, sometimes remonstrating in private as necessary, but leading by example. One commentator said, and I quote, the life should command, the tongue should persuade. Well, that's good. Like all short statements, it doesn't cover every necessity or eventuality, but that's a good general rule. The life should command, the tongue should persuade. And so the first area of service is toward the sheep. And this is how to serve the sheep in this way described by this threefold description. But the second thing to keep in mind is that we are serving the shepherd. Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Always serving with an eye to the day of Christ's return. Remember who you serve. Remember when you will be rewarded. And remember, what are the rewards for faithfulness? 
Remember who you serve, the chief shepherd. Jesus is called the good shepherd in John 10:11, and the great shepherd in Hebrews 13:20, and here he's called the chief shepherd, literally the arch shepherd. We've all heard of an archbishop. That's the bishop who's over the bishops. We don't find that in the Bible. But we do find the arch shepherd in the Bible. He's the shepherd who's over the shepherds. The shepherds are pastors. That's another name for pastor. And there is an arch shepherd. There is a shepherd who is over all the shepherds. There is a shepherd who is over all the flock. The under shepherds, which is a good way to describe the difference between the chief shepherd and the pastors. The under shepherds each have a small flock, a portion of the flock that has been assigned to them by the arch shepherd, by the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. It's his flock. It's his sheep. He's the great shepherd. And so remember who it is you're serving. You're not serving yourself, that's for sure, and you're not even primarily serving the sheep, though that is very prominent, and Peter even puts that first. But underlying all of that, and what is even more important, you're serving Jesus Christ, and you've got to keep that in mind when the sheep aren't pleased. And sometimes they're not. Who am I serving here? Who am I trying to please most? The sheep or the chief shepherd? And you'll have to weigh that and wrestle with that and come to some conclusions regarding that, but you better always make the decision in the favor of the chief shepherd. Remember who you serve. And number two, remember when you will be rewarded. You'll be rewarded when the chief shepherd appears. You may not be rewarded much in this life. You may, but you may not. And you will not be rewarded immediately at death, but you'll be rewarded at the second coming of Christ because that's when Christ rewards all his servants. It's not just the pastors who are going to be rewarded at the second coming of Christ. It is all of God's people who are going to receive their rewards at the second coming of Christ. That's when you will receive the full, glorious, and astonishing reward for your labors if you have been faithful, dear pastor, dear elder. And keep in mind the rewards of faithfulness. You will receive a crown, a stephanos. It means to put around, to encircle. And it it has to do with the victor's crown, a wreath. Athletes receive this kind of crown. This isn't a, a diadem, a king's crown. It's an athlete's reward. Or soldiers receive this kind of crown when they had been particularly courageous on the battlefield and had achieved some noble end. It's a symbol of special honor. It doesn't go to everyone. If you honor everyone the same way, then you end up really not adequately honoring those who have excelled, those who have been particularly faithful. In this day and time, we've got to give the same rewards to everybody or you'll hurt somebody's self-esteem. Well, that's not the way that Christ does his rewarding. He rewards those who deserve it. He gives the greatest rewards to those who have been most faithful. And lesser rewards to those who have only been partly faithful. Look to yourselves, said John, that we lose not the things which we have worked for, which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. There are full rewards and there are partial rewards. We should all be laboring for a full reward. And so this reward, special honor, public honor, a reward, a crown of glory, That will not fade away. It will never fade. That word unfading is made up of a Greek word 
that has the name of a flower that had the reputation for having unfading beauty. Not because, of course, it really did never fade, but it faded so much more slowly than other flowers. Most flowers, you look at their beauty, they're incredible. If you leave them on where they grow, pretty soon they pass their peak and they fade away. You cut them, try to preserve them. You have them for a little while, but they quickly fade away. Well, there's one flower that seems to last for weeks instead of days. And that became a symbol of unfading glory. And that's the word that Peter uses here. Unfading glory, that is eternal, heavenly glory that will never diminish, that will never fade like all earthly glory does, like all earthly achievements do, like all earthly recognition and honor and reward does. It all fades away. Don't live for that which will fade away. Live for that which is eternal. All of us. And under shepherds, keep that in mind. Your reward here is sometimes honorable, sometimes shameful, but never really sufficient for for the work that you do. But remember, the rewards when Christ returns will be excessive beyond all imagination. So remember this and labor for this and persevere for this. And you will be a faithful servant who will hear the words of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of your Lord. Shall we pray? As we quiet our hearts before you in prayer, again, O Lord, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together as the people of God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this portion of your word that might not have been selected as a suitable portion for ministering to an entire congregation, but when we follow a systematic expository approach through the word of God, we deal with everything. And we know in doing so, O Lord, that you have placed it there for a purpose that benefits us all. And so, Lord, take these words and use them in the hearts and lives of all of your people, both sheep as well as under-shepherds. And may it be a reminder to all of us to do things your way, not our way, to work for heavenly glory, not earthly glory, to wait for that day of eternal reward and not to expect our rewards here upon the earth. O Lord, help us to be faithful to that which you've committed into our trust, whatever that may be, as we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.